you have a Bible, open it to Matthew chapter 11. Our passage is Matthew eleven twenty-five to 30. Our summer sermon series is titled Knowing Jesus, and we're taking the summer months just to talk about basic truths about who Jesus is, what does the Bible say about Jesus, things that we need to know and things that we need to respond to in an appropriate way. We've talked about Jesus being the ruler. He's the ruler of the kings on this earth. We've talked about Jesus being the Savior, the one who came to save us from our sins. Ron Hinesley preached and he talked to us about Jesus being our friend. What does it mean and what does it not mean that Jesus is a friend of sinners? We talked about Jesus being faithful to His character, faithful to His promises. A couple of weeks back, Jason Westfall preached and he talked about Jesus being the mediator. He is the only mediator between the holy God that we just sang about in sinful people like you and me. We're going to reference that truth again this morning. Last week we talked about Jesus returning. He's the one who's going to come back for His people. And this morning we're going to talk about the biblical truth that Jesus is gentle. And we're going to pull that truth from Matthew chapter 11. And so before we get to our passage in Matthew 11, I just want to say a few things about the gospel of Matthew. Matthew wrote his gospel, the first book in our New Testament, because he wanted people to know the truth about who Jesus is. And if your Bible's open, you might just hold your spot in Matthew 11, and you can flip back to Matthew chapter 1. The very first words in Matthew 1 are the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And right there, Matthew is saying something to you about Jesus, something that you need to know. He's the Christ. That word Christ is not part of Jesus' proper name, but it's a title that tells you something about Jesus. What does it mean that He's the Christ? Well, He's the Son of Abraham and the Son of David. He's the one promised in the Old Testament, the one who fulfills all the prophecies, all the promises that God made to His people. He's the Christ. He's the Messiah. If you jump down to Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, the angel told Joseph to name his son Jesus. Why? Because Jesus means Yahweh saves, and this baby would grow up and save His people from their sins. This baby would be no ordinary baby, but it would actually be truly God with us. And that's in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, a prophecy pulled from the book of Isaiah chapter 7. So he's the Christ. He's the one who came to save us from our sins. He's truly God with us, truly God, truly man. And as you continue reading in Matthew chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 3, it's clear that Matthew wants you to understand that Jesus is the true Israel. He's the one who lived out what Israel, the nation, failed to live out. And we read these stories about Jesus being taken, of all places, to Egypt and then being called out of Egypt. Entering the promised land through the Jordan River, being tempted in the wilderness. All of these stories Matthew is laying out in systematic fashion so that you understand Jesus is the true Israel. He's the remnant, not of a few, but of one. So he's written this gospel so that you would know the truth about Jesus. And by the time you get to Matthew chapter 11, we're ready for an important truth about 
Jesus and his character, who he is, something that we need to know about Jesus. And the big idea of our time together this morning, the big idea of this sermon is simply this, Jesus is gentle. He's gentle. Now, I'm aware that as we read through these verses, when you get to verse 29, what Jesus actually says about himself is that he is gentle and lowly in heart, gentle and lowly. What I'm saying to you at the outset is that those two words, gentle and lowly, have a semantic range that overlaps. Jesus, in saying that he's gentle and lowly, is not saying two different things about himself, but he's saying one thing about himself, and he's using two different words to talk about this aspect of his character. And we're just going to talk, for the sake of clarity, about Jesus being gentle with his people. So, take your copy of the scriptures. We'll read our passage, Matthew 11, beginning in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared... I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and have revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Father, this morning we've sung about your holiness. And we've confessed our sin. We've acknowledged that our sins are many. And Lord, we have expressed our hope, our confidence, our faith that the mercy offered to sinners in the person and the work of your son Jesus Christ is more than, it's greater than, it's bigger than, it's more powerful than our sin. And Lord, that's what we're talking about this morning as we think about Jesus being gentle and inviting people and promising them rest. So Lord, we pray that you would open our eyes to these truths, help us to believe these things about Jesus, help us not to question your word or to think that we know better than Jesus who he is and what he's like. Just give us humility to listen to what Jesus says about himself. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think the place to begin this morning is with the word gentle. And as we begin to dig into this passage, there's a few things we need to deconstruct, I think, in our minds about some of the vocabulary words used here. And then there's some things we need to reconstruct and put together so that we're hearing Jesus say what he intended to actually say. So when I say the word gentle, you probably think about something relating to physical touch, something that you need to handle with care, something that you need to be cautious with. And so I tried to think, what would be things that we would be gentle with 
today in a physical sense? Well, one thing would be a newborn baby. We have some little babies here at the church, and when you hold a newborn baby, you know you've got to be very careful. You've got to be very gentle. You don't want to shake the baby. You don't want to drop the baby, but you have to be very gentle with that baby. Maybe you've gotten a new puppy recently. And maybe you got that puppy when he or she was small and it fit in the palm of your hand and you could hold it and he was so cute and you just knew, I don't need to get the newspaper after this puppy, but I got to be gentle with this puppy. Maybe you've celebrated a holiday at your grandma's house and maybe you didn't just eat on the paper plates or the plastic plates, but maybe she got the fine china out and maybe... As you sat down at the table, Grandma shook a finger in your face and said, now you've got to be gentle with the fine china. You can't bang your fork onto it. You can't scratch the silverware together. When you're done, you can't just go throw it in the sink to be cleaned. It's delicate, and you've got to be gentle with it. That's how we usually talk about gentleness in terms of physicality, things that we handle, things that we touch. But it's not exactly what Jesus is driving at when he says in this passage that he is gentle and lowly in heart. I'll just give you a dictionary definition from Strong's Concordance. He's talking about uh, in the concordance here about gentleness, and he says it's the positive moral quality of dealing with people. So we're not talking about physical touch, we're talking about how we interact with people. Dealing with people in a kind manner with humility and consideration. Sometimes this word is translated meek. Now when I throw the word meek at you, we're sort of off on another not helpful rabbit trail, I think. Because if I said to you, hey, I want you to meet so-and-so, I'm going to introduce you. They're a very meek person. What you would probably think is, oh, they're very shy. They're very reserved. They're very quiet. Maybe they're a little bit withdrawn. Maybe they're soft-spoken and they don't want to assert themselves. They are, in your brain, you would think, meek. Jesus was meek, but he wasn't reserved or shy or soft-spoken. And he didn't hold back. He wasn't afraid to make his voice known. In fact, he walked right into the temple and he cleared it twice. Yelling was involved in that, raising his voice was involved in that. Jesus talked to some people, and in his meekness, he called them snakes, serpents, hypocrites, whitewashed tombs. Jesus, who was gentle and who was meek, once went and had dinner in the home of a Pharisee, and in front of all the guests, he called this man out on his sin in a a way that if you were at a dinner party, you would say, that was uncomfortable. That got awkward. And in your mind, you say, a meek person would never do that, but Jesus, who is gentle and who is meek, did that. So we're wrestling with this idea of gentleness and with meekness. There's a Greek word group that translates all sorts of words related to gentleness. The Greek root is prow. We would spell it P-R-A-U. There's a noun version and there's an adjective version and there's a verb version of the word. Uh, Gentleness or gentle as an adjective or to be gentle as a verb. None of these words have anything to do with weakness or softness. They all convey the idea of strength that is under control. It's one thing to have strength. 
It's one thing to have power. It's another thing to have strength and power that is under control. And that's what this word group is getting at. I'll just give you an example from the world of literature. John Steinbeck wrote a novel many years ago, one of the great American novelists called A Mice and Men. And there's two main characters in the book, George and Lenny. And George is a smaller man, fairly intelligent, although not educated. Lenny is a large, strong, powerful man. And in the book, the one thing that Lenny wants is to live on a farm with rabbits. It's not because he likes to eat rabbits. It's because he loves rabbits. He thinks they're cute. He wants to hold them. He loves rabbits. That's the one thing he wants. But he's a big man. He's a powerful man. He's a strong man. And he has no control over his strength. And repeatedly in the book, his strength gets the best of him. And he ends up hurting animals or people. He has no self-control over his power. And when we talk about gentleness or meekness, we're not talking about softness. We're not talking about passivity. We're not talking about somebody who's just completely laid back and doesn't care. We're talking about somebody who has strength, but who has strength that is under control. Now remember, too, we're not talking about physicality. We're talking about how we relate to other people. So let me just sum it up like this. I'll put two categories up on the screen. A person who is not gentle. They are abrasive, irritable, mean, stingy, inconsistent, and hot-headed. You know any people like that? Not gentle. By contrast, a person who is gentle is kind. They're patient. They're understanding. They're approachable, and they're slow to anger. They're not a hothead. They don't fly off the handle, but they're slow to anger. Thinking about gentleness as we relate to other people, and Jesus in this passage says that he is gentle and lowly of heart. So our aim is simple. We want to ask the question and answer the question, how do we understand, how should we understand the gentleness of Jesus, and what kind of response should we make as his people? So, number one, when Jesus describes his heart as gentle and lowly, he's talking about something that is central to his character. This will be a pretty quick point, but it's really foundational to everything we're saying this morning. I just want to make the observation that Jesus in Matthew 11, he does not say, he did not say, I am gentle and lowly. He said, I'm gentle and lowly in heart. So I've referenced a book in this series a couple of times. The author is Dane Ortland, and the title of the book is Deeper. Deeper is actually sort of a, a follow-up. It's not really part two, but it's a follow-up to the first book that Ortland wrote in this uh, two-part series, if you want to call it that. And the first book he wrote is called Gentle and Lowly, and you can see where he pulled the title of the book from, Matthew 11. And he talks in the book about the fact that Jesus in describing his heart, says something about the essence of who he is here that he doesn't say anywhere else. And this is what I'm telling you. Jesus says lots of things about himself in the Gospels. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He's the good shepherd. All sorts of things about himself. This is the only place that he talks about his heart. And in the Jewish mindset, your heart was far more than the 
the muscle in your chest that constricts and pumps blood throughout your body. Your heart was the essence, it was the center, it was the core of who you are. It was the center of your personality. It was the summation of who you are as a person. And this is the only place that Jesus talks about his heart. He's not talking physical muscle. He's talking about the essence of who he is. And the one thing that he says in the one place where he talks about his heart is that he is gentle and lowly in heart. If you want a comparison for what Jesus is saying here, you could look to the Old Testament to the book of Exodus. God has saved the people from slavery in Egypt. He's teaching those people who he is and what he's like. They're confused. I don't know if you've ever read the Old Testament, but the people are confused. They're trying to put all the pieces together in real time. They're thinking, is, is this God like the Egyptian gods and goddesses? Is this God like the Canaanite gods and goddesses? Is this deity like Molech or Baal? What is this God like? And God is teaching them. And God says to Moses at a critical moment in the people leaving Egypt, He says to his Moses this in Exodus 34, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And God in this passage is saying to Moses, Moses, Let's get down to the core of who I am. Something that you must understand about me. I am not the kind of deity that flies off the handle. I'm not the kind of deity that is quick to anger. I'm not the kind of deity that has a small amount of steadfast love. I'm abounding in steadfast love. I'm always faithful. And I am a God who is quick to forgive his people. This is something central to who Yahweh is that Moses and the people needed to understand. In a similar way, when Jesus talks about his heart, he's talking about something that is central and essential to who he is, which means this. If you want to know Jesus, and I don't mean just know about Jesus. It's one thing to know about Jesus, to be able to answer a question about Jesus. Like I could answer a question about my favorite athlete. I know about them, but I don't know them. If you want to know Jesus, you must know what we're talking about this morning. You must be grounded in this truth that Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart and he's offering rest to people who are burdened. So that brings us to the second truth on your notes. Those who are burdened are invited to find rest for their souls. Those who have a burden are invited to bring it to Jesus. And in exchange for that burden, Jesus promises them rest. Now, I like Sunday afternoon naps. I'm not going to get one today because it's VBS tomorrow, so I'll be up here all day getting ready for VBS. No nap today. But next week, I'll be back on my Sunday afternoon nap schedule, resting. That's not the kind of rest that Jesus is talking about. He's not talking about a nap. He's not talking about eight hours of sleep at night. He's not talking about a week of vacation. He's talking about rest for your soul. And what Jesus is saying is so beautiful, and it's so counterintuitive to the way that most of us think. 
Most of us think, if I can just get my act together spiritually, I'll be in good with Jesus. If I can just get all my spiritual ducks in a row, I probably need to have a quiet time every day for a year. I've already blown it this year, so maybe there's next year. I probably need to be at a church a minimum of 75% of the time. Maybe, I don't know. And we come up with all these lists of things. I need to do these things. I need to get my act together. And if I can do these things good enough, I'll be in with Jesus. And what Jesus says is, you can be in with Him if you have a burden. If you have a burden. You can bring your burden to Jesus, and He will give you rest for your souls. This is what Jesus talked about in Mark chapter 2. Verse 17, where he said, I didn't come to call the righteous, but sinners. If you're healthy, you don't need a doctor. I'm here for the sick people. You understand that Jesus doesn't think that any of us are righteous left to ourselves, but he understands that some of us think that we're righteous left to ourselves. And what Jesus is saying is, if you think you've got it all together, I'm not here for you. But if you understand that you're a sinner, I'm calling you to repentance into life. That's the same thing Jesus is saying in this passage when he's offering rest, not to anyone, not to everyone, but to people who have a burden that they will bring to Jesus. So what does this burden look like? What might it look like in your life? Let me just give you a few examples quickly. Number one, those burdened by their smallness will find significance. So maybe one of the burdens you carry is just an overwhelming sense of smallness, that you are a forgotten person, an overlooked person, an ignored person. You say, I'm sitting in a room together with lots of people, but I feel completely alone and disconnected. I feel like nobody truly knows me. Yes, people spoke to me when I walked in this morning, and yes, people called my name, but I'm not sure that these people really know me. Jesus knows you. He knows everything about you. He made you. He cares for you. He knows the number of hairs on your head or face, if you prefer. He knows the requests on your heart before they come out of your mouth. He knows the days of your life because they were written before you lived any one of them. He knows you. You're not insignificant or overlooked to Him. So if your burden is smallness, you find significance. Number two, if you're burdened by suffering, you find comfort. Jesus knows the experience of suffering. He knows what it is to be tempted. He knows what it is to be hungry. Some of you right now are thinking, I'm kind of hungry. Wish this sermon would wrap up. Suffering is kicking in. Jesus knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be tired. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to be lied about, slandered about. He knows what it's like to be rejected for your own family to hold you at arm's length. He knows what it's like to be betrayed by a close friend. He knows what it's like to feel all alone in the midst of your suffering. He knows what physical suffering is like, and He knows what death is like. 
He is a good high priest, the Bible says, who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He is a man of sorrows, the Bible says, acquainted with grief and familiar with suffering. And he understands your suffering. Thirdly, those burdened by sinfulness can find forgiveness. This gets to the root of the matter, I think. Those burdened by their sinfulness will find forgiveness. Look, you're here on a Sunday morning in the summer. You could be doing lots of different things. You're here. And so I'm going to make the assumption that someone at some point in your life has told you that Jesus Christ died on a cross for sinners. Jesus Christ died on a cross for sinners. It's possible that no one has ever told you that. And if they've never told you that, I'm telling you that. The Bible says that Jesus died a substitutionary sacrificial death on the cross for sinners. And I'm guessing that most of you have heard that. That Jesus died so that you might live. That you might have spiritual life and eternal life. That his mercy and his grace motivated him to die a death in your place. Most of you have probably heard that. Some of you, probably not many, but some of you probably sit here this morning or might sit here this morning and you say, you know what, all this talk about sin, I don't like it. I think I'm a pretty good person. Now, again, you're here on a Sunday morning in the summer. You probably have some nagging sense of things are not quite right in my life. I have not lived up to God's standards. I've fallen short. You probably understand that. But there are people in the world, you understand, who just reject the category of sin and say, you know what, I'm not buying it. I think I'm a pretty good person. Jesus dying for sinners, that doesn't really compute with me because I don't think that I have a great sin problem. Now, some of you might make the opposite mistake, and you might say, Jesus died for sinners. Great. means I can do whatever I want. He died for it, right? Isn't that what the preacher just said? He died on the cross for it, so I can go out and I can do all I want and live it up. And it doesn't really matter if the Bible says it's good or bad because Jesus died for it. I heard that at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And if you make that mistake, you're the kind of person that Paul says you've got it all wrong in the book of Romans. You've got to go all the way back to the beginning. You've missed it. That's not the point of the gospel at all. But your people who are here at church on a Sunday, in the middle of the summer. And so my guess is that most of you are not the kind of people who say, sin is not a problem in my life. And most of you are not the kind of people who say, I think I can do whatever I want because Jesus died for it. I think most of us struggle with something sort of right in the middle of that. I think most of us hear the message that Jesus died for sinners, and we say, that sounds good. Sounds like good news. I'd like to hear more about that. I'd like to believe that. I'd like to believe that somebody died for my mistakes. That sounds good. But even as you struggle to believe that, there's a voice in the back of your head, maybe sometimes it's in the front of your head, that says things like, you're not going to confess that same sin again, are you? Was that five times this week? Six times? Ten times? How many years are you going to promise to read through the Bible and you don't do it? You made all these things, you promises to God, you've, you've fallen short on all of them. And this voice in the back of our head just says something to us along the lines of, 
Jesus died for sinners, I get it, but I think he's probably fed up with me. I think he's had enough, and he's probably really frustrated, and he's tired of hearing me say the same thing over and over and over again and asking forgiveness for the same things over and over and over again. And he probably wishes by now that I would just get my act together and clean myself up so that he wouldn't have to keep doing it for me. Surely, he's about had enough of me. Why do we think like that? Well, in part, because that's how we think about other people. I'll I'll forgive you this time. Next time, I'm not sure. Third time, no way. That's how we are. And we project our thoughts about what Jesus is like, who God is, on Him, rather than listening to what Jesus says in the Bible. So let me just share a quote with you. This is Dane Ortland, gentle and lowly. He says this, this is why we need a Bible. It's because we're prone to take our thoughts about what Jesus is probably like and project them onto him. This is why we need a Bible. Our natural intuition can only give us a God like us. If you start with yourself, you're going to end up with a God just like yourself. You need a Bible to tell you that God is not like you. The God revealed in the Scripture deconstructs our intuitive predilections and He startles us by His infinitude of gentleness. Indeed, His perfections include His perfect tenderness. You will not change until you get straight who Jesus is, particularly with regard to His surprising tenderness. Listen to this. The only alternative to the real Jesus is to get back on the treadmill. We're not talking about a real treadmill, don't worry. But the only alternative to the real Jesus, who's gentle and lowly, is to get back on the treadmill of doing your best to follow and honor Jesus, but believing that His mercy and His grace is a stockpile, gradually depleted by your failures, and you hope you make it to death before the mountain of mercy runs out. That's how some of us think about Jesus. Oh, He he died for sinners. Well, He'll forgive you. But, you know, everybody has limits. How many times are you going to go to him for forgiveness and confessing your failures? Don't you think he's kind of tired of that by now? And in our minds, we picture his mercy and his grace like a mountain. And every time he forgives us, he pulls a little bit off that mountain and he gives it to us. And that mountain gets lower and lower and lower. Like the meter, the the life meter on a video game, and you say, I hope I can make it to the end of the level before my life meter runs out, before his mercy runs out. I hope I can get to the end of life without getting to the end of his mercy. That's why you need a Bible. So that you don't have to listen to your intuition that tells you that Jesus is like you, and you can listen to what Jesus says When he says, come to me, all who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Those who are burdened are invited to find rest for their souls. In this invitation... Has no expiration. It's not going to run out. He knows who you are. 
Nothing in your life catches him off guard. And his invitation to a sinner to come stands. Bring your burden. Bring it today. Bring it tomorrow. Bring it the next day. Bring it the day after that. Bring it every day that you live on this earth. And as you bring it, you will find rest for your soul. Now, one last truth, and this is important. Jesus is gentle with his people, but he's not gentle with everyone. This is the the surprising part of the passage, I guess you might say. Some of you might think it's a frightening part of the passage or a part of the passage that you'd rather not talk about. It's been good up to this point. But we've got to listen to what Jesus had to say in context because this stuff about gentle and lowly comes in the middle of the paragraph. So we've got to back up and think about the first part of the paragraph and listen to what Jesus himself says. One of the things Jesus says is that the Father has to reveal the truth about Jesus to you as a sinner. That's the work of God the Father. It's not the work of your pastor. I can't do that for you. Your grandparents or your parents can't do that for you. Your Sunday school teacher can't do that for you. Your favorite online preacher or podcast or YouTuber, they can't do this for you. Your favorite author can't reveal this to you. Only the Father can reveal the truth about Jesus to a sinner. That's what Jesus said in verse 25. Notice he's praying. He's declaring something, but his declaration is a prayer because he says, I thank you, Father. You're, you're listening to an inner Trinitarian conversation. God the Son is talking to God the Father, and He's thanking Him. And what does He thank Him for? I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. You have hidden these things from the wise and understanding. The people who are spiritual know-it-alls, and the people who think they are burdenless because they have their spiritual act together, the things that we're talking about have been hidden from them. The Father has hidden these things from those people. That's what Jesus says, verse 25. And he says, you've revealed them to little children. Hidden them from those who don't want to acknowledge a burden, but you've revealed them to little children. I don't think he's talking about age here. I think he's talking about the condition of your heart spiritually. Are you like a child? You won't see the kingdom of heaven unless you enter like a child. Jesus says, you've revealed these things to little children. I don't know if you've spent time around little children lately. They're good at some things, and they're not good at other things. And one of the things that they are good at is telling you about their burdens. And it usually looks something like this. And we usually call it whining or complaining. And it's usually something we try to work out of our children. We say, hey, don't be so whiny. Why are you so needy? Don't complain so much. Starving children in Africa. Grandma grew up in the Great Depression. Quit whining and complaining so much. I made a list of things that kids whine about. You know what I put first? I'm bored. I have a thousand screens. I can't find anything to do. I'm bored. I don't know what to do. I'm bored. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Some of you have heard that within this sermon. I've talked about it already. And I planted the seed, and some little person next to you has already leaned over and said, I'm really hungry. How long do you think he's going to go? I'm hungry. 
so-and-so is poking me. The burden is a finger that belongs to somebody else and it's entered my space and it's touching me or it's whatever, it's in my bubble. They're poking me, they're touching me. I don't know how to do this homework. You're going to hear that before long. It's coming. They're going to come home and they're going to say, the teacher gave us this homework, the teacher didn't teach anything. I don't even know why they're paying that teacher. They didn't tell us anything. I don't know anything about numbers or math and I have all this homework. They didn't tell me how to do it. What do I do? I don't know how to do it. They're telling you about a burden. Green beans. I got green beans on my plate and I don't want to eat them. I, I can't eat them. I cannot get them down. I don't want them. We call it whining. We call it complaining. And it is that. Whining and complaining are real, and you should not want your kids or your grandkids to whine or complain. But you understand that from a different perspective... What kids are doing, they're intuitively doing, they're bringing a burden to somebody that they think can help. I'm bored. Would you look at me and talk to me? Would you play with me? Because I'm bored. Maybe you can fix that problem. I'm tired. You ever been on a hike or a walk with your kids? I'm tired. They're looking at you and they say, you look big and strong. Maybe you could carry me because I'm tired. The kids right now looking at you saying they're hungry. They know you have money in your wallet. And they know Roses is open on Sunday. And they're looking at you saying, can you do something about this? Could we just go? And you have the money. They have the burritos. Help me. The poking. Would you send them to the corner? Would you ground them? The homework. Would you help me with this? The green beans, would you just eat them for me? I have a burden and I need help. You understand, Jesus is not inviting you to whine or complain, but he is inviting you to bring your burden to him. Now, this is what he's saying in verse 25. Are you ready? Because I'm coming all the way back around. Verse 25, Jesus is saying, no person left to themselves will ever recognize that they have a burden or bring it to Jesus believing that he can fix it. Only the people that the Father reveals the truth about Jesus to will do that. Then he follows it up with a a second statement, equally offensive to modern people. Sinners can only know the Father through the Son. That's verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. That's Jesus speaking. I'm not making it up. Jesus says, no one knows the one true God, God the Father. No one, unless God the Son, Jesus, who knows Him, chooses to reveal Him to you. Jesus would not make it long on a modern university campus. Because he is saying, this is something you cannot figure out on your own. God has to reveal it to you. That you have a burden and that Jesus can fix it. And the only way that you can come to the true God, the Father, is if Jesus chooses to reveal him to you. It's almost like Jesus is saying, look, there's only one God and there's only one mediator between God and Man, it's the man Christ Jesus. I think you heard a sermon about that a few weeks ago. 
from one of our pastors. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5. It talks about the exclusivity of the gospel. There's only one God, and there's only one way to be made right with Him. That's what Jesus talks about in John 14, 6, that He's the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one can come to the Father unless you come through Him. It's what the apostles are talking about in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, when they say there's no other name given among men under heaven by which people might be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. There's only one God. He is Lord of heaven and earth. And He's in charge of revealing gospel truth to people. And the only way that you can come to Him is through the Son. Your pastor can't conjure this for you. We can't have enough smoke and lights and whatever to create this in your heart. It's the work of Almighty God to reveal these truths to you and to give you access to the Father. Now, that's big talk. I understand it's big talk. God has to reveal the truth, and you can only come to the Father through Jesus. I can't reveal it to you. I can talk about it, but I can't open your heart. That's why we pray for you all the time in this room on a Sunday morning that God would open your heart, because I can't open it. It's why we pray when we have Bible study in this church that God would give us eyes to see the truth. It's because I can't, I can talk about it, I can set it in front of you, but I can't open your eyes to these things. God has to reveal these things. That's what Jesus says in this passage. So all that big theological talk about the sovereignty of God and revealing and having access to the Father, maybe we just stand back and we just sort of look around and wait and see who Jesus is going to reveal the Father to and who the Father is going to receive truth to. And we wait for like spiritual lightning bolts to just drop down and hit people. And we say, oh, that looks like one right there. That's not what we do. We meet together in this room. We open the book. We read the book. We say we want to know the truth about who Jesus is. We want to understand it. We want to pray that God would open our hearts and open our eyes to the truth. And then we understand that while God is sovereign in any sinner coming to faith in Jesus. We also understand that we're responsible to come. And Jesus talks about that responsibility right in this passage. He says all this stuff about the Father, the Lord of heaven, has to reveal these things to you. The only way you can come to the Father is through the Son. The Father gave Him everything, and the Son is revealing Him to the people He chooses to reveal Him to. And then look what He says in verse 28. Come. Come. He's gentle and lowly to His people. But the invitation is that you become one of His people and you come to Him. You take His yoke upon you. You learn from Him as a disciple. And you know Him. Not just know about Him, but you know Him to be gentle and lowly in heart. There's a great mystery in that. We pray that God would do the work that only God can do, but we also lay on you the responsibility to come to Jesus, to acknowledge your burden, to bring it to Jesus Christ, to trust that He is offering you rest for your soul, and to believe that He is who He says He is. He's not exasperated when you bring your burden to Him for the first time, the second time, the hundredth time, the thousandth time. But He's gentle, and He's lowly in heart, and He offers you rest, rest for your soul.